Well, hey, it's great to say hello to you again, wherever you happen to be watching from, and say to all of you on our campuses, glad to be with you this weekend, and wherever you're watching, some of you from home and other parts of Western Canada. And of course, once in a while, I have to give a shout out to my mom who's faithfully watching down in Oregon, and uh, that's very important, of course, to acknowledge that. Anyway, we are going to dive right into our text. You're going to want to have your Bibles, so if you're sitting at home and you don't yet have your Bibles with you, maybe just press pause. Grab your Bible and turn to Isaiah 46, and we are going to read together the first 13 verses, a uh, really important text. So Isaiah 46, verses 1 to 13, and it says this, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make we equal? And compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Thus the reading of God's word. You have likely heard the statement, all religions are the same. And if you haven't heard it yet, just wait a little while. You eventually will bump into that sentiment and maybe just prime the pump with a few questions. What do you think about God and about religion? Uh, what's the difference between a Buddhist and a Muslim, a Hindu or a Christian? And likely what you will hear is something along these lines. Well, basically all religions are the same and they share the same core beliefs. They all point to the same God, even though they might use different names to describe him. They travel different paths, but they end up at the same destination. Now, there's lots of metaphors that religions are like the spokes of a wheel. All those individual spokes might be distinct, but at the hub of the wheel, they share certain core things in common. Or like the mountain, uh, all the roads lead to the top of the same mountain, and so you might travel a different path to get there, but ultimately, at the top of that mountain, you find yourselves unified. Or you may have heard of the blind men 
who are standing around an elephant uh, is the word picture, describing God, describing religion. And so the man who clings to the big legs say that, well, God is like a giant palm tree. And another who's clinging onto the tail says, no, no, don't be silly. God is like a rope. And the one who is hanging onto the trunk says, no, he's like a reptilian python. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, of course, they're all right, you see, because they're blind. They cannot see in whole. They only see a part. You have your truth. I have my truth. In his book, God is Not One, Stephen Prothero says, at least since the first petals of the countercultural bloomed across Europe and the United States in the 1960s, it has been fashionable to affirm that all religions are beautiful and all are true. This claim, which reaches back to the book All Religions Are One in 1795 by an English poet named William Blake, is as odd as it is intriguing. No one argues that different economic systems or political regimes are one and the same. Capitalism and socialism are so obviously at odds that their differences hardly bear mentioning. The same goes for democracy and monarchy. And yet scholars continue to claim that religious rivals such as Hinduism and Islam, Judaism and Christianity, are by some miracle of the imagination essentially the same. And this view resounds in the echo chamber of popular culture. Now, I, I like this book. Uh, it's great in that it gives a good overview of the eight major world religions that, uh, that run the world. But it's even better because it is not written by an evangelical Christian. Uh, Prothero is a PhD in religion, and he teaches religion in America at Boston University. We'll come back to some of his thoughts in a little bit, but what our text and what Prothero says contrasts with the thoughts that we hear so often, and our text brings us back to this one central theme of the Bible from cover to cover. The big idea that echoes through nearly every book in the Bible and is certainly the big idea that links the 66 books together in one cohesive unit, and it is this thought, there is only one God and there is only one path to salvation. There is only one God, and there is only one path to salvation. Now, that is an audacious claim. And depending on who is saying it, and how it is said, it can sound arrogant and exclusionary and intolerant. And so what do we do with a claim such as this? Do we deny it? Do we try to justify it or skirt around it, or let's just change the topic. Or do we dig in deep and do the deep philosophical and theological work that is needed? And so what I hope to convince you of in just this short period of time is that there is indeed only one God, and that there is indeed only one path to salvation, and that there is an open invitation that God gives when he says here in the book of Isaiah, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. So that's where we're headed. There is only one God and only one way of salvation, and you can accept that statement or reject it. You can deny it or defend it. You can agree with it or disagree with it. But it is the central claim of the Bible. And if it is true 
then there's no other message that should burn in our hearts and our prayers for all of our friends and family who have not yet heard or understood this message. So I've got a six-point sermon today. Aren't you excited? Three implications and three applications. Now, the first is going to be the longest. The first implication is simply this, that this is an exclusive claim. You cannot read the Bible, both Old and New Testament, and come away with any other conclusion than this. You see, God-fearing Old Testament saints would open and close their days in prayer. They would say the prayer with the family, when you lie down and when you wake up, it says, morning and evening. They would recite some key scriptures over and over again. It was like their confession of faith. Uh, we sometimes refer to it as the Shema, uh, the Shema prayer, because the, the Hebrew word for hear, the very first word in this prayer, is the word Shema, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. Parents teaching their children, tell it to your kids when they wake up and when you're tucking them into bed at night. The Lord, He is one. Now, when you fast forward to the New Testament, you see another account with Jesus in the garden the night that he was betrayed for his crucifixion. And it says there that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to the soldiers who had come to arrest him, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. When he said that to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you that I am he. Now, when we are reading through the gospel of John on a fast forward speed, we can miss the lightning bolt that pierces the sky in that moment that Jesus issues that claim, I am he. Ego ami are the, the Greek words, I am he. What was it about those words in particular that literally knocked these soldiers off their feet? They're laying on the ground in, as Jesus makes this declaration, I am he. Well, scholars and as well as ordinary students, men like you and me, who read the Bible well, who take notes and who connect the dots, will point out the audaciousness of what Jesus is saying in that moment. Because that phrase, ego ami, I am he, is the very same concept that Jehovah uses over and over to identify himself to his children. We see it when he called Moses in Exodus 3, and, and Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they say, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to them, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in the context that we have been studying this fall, the book of Isaiah, we see this refrain over and over again, behold your God. O Israel, O nations, Oh, church, lift up your eyes and see your God. Uh, we started in chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people. And the question, of course, is, well, who could possibly accomplish that? Who could comfort, comfort us in these days of exile when we are not feeling at home, when we feel like outsiders in the culture that we're living in? Who has this under control? And I'm just going to walk you through like a fire hose, the references in these next three or four chapters. Isaiah 41, verse 4, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am He. Isaiah 41, 13, I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am 
the one who helps you. Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. 43, verse 11, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord. There is no other. Beside me there is no God. And verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then it leads us to this beautiful, incredible invitation at the end of chapter 45. So turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. You see, the implication, number one, is that this is an exclusive claim. You can't read the Bible, Old and New Testament, and come to any other conclusion. The God of the Bible makes an exclusive claim about who He is and how we should respond to him. Implication number two, it's a divisive claim. Obviously, it's divisive. It divides, it cuts, it separates, because if this is true, then all other options cannot be equally true. All other so-called gods are actually not gods at all. You see, an idol is anything that takes a higher place in our affections and in our devotion than God himself. And idolatry is the primary sin of the scriptures, even though we may not often call our sin idolatry, it is the root sin of all other sins. The first of the Ten Commandments was, you shall have no other gods before me. Money, sex, power, achievement, education, possessions, fame, influence, sports, business, the stock market, the racetrack, the strip club, beauty, fashion, health and fitness, health and wealth, and worst of all, country music. Your culture worships at these idols, but ultimately they will not satisfy you. You can chase them, but they're elusive. It's like chasing after the wind. The moment you think you've grabbed them, it slips out of your fingers. The new car that brought you so much pleasure and joy 10 years ago is now old and faded. That phone in your pocket is awesome, but in three months there will be a better model. That body that you're working so hard sculpting and shaping will grow old and weak and frail. The money that you've been packing away to secure your future can be lost overnight, and the health that you guard so furiously can be lost in a moment. You drink, but you're not satisfied, is what the scriptures say. 
And in Isaiah 46, what we read earlier, God tackles the two patron gods of the Babylonians, Bel and Nebo. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Now, Bel is the head in the pantheon of the Babylonian gods. He is also called Marduk, if you're looking him up. His son is named Nebo. Here, Bel and Nebo, who stoop, who bow down. Uh, we, we hear their names in the names of the Babylonian kings, Bel Shazar, and Nebo, or Nebuchadnezzar. Nebo, Knezer. And at the New Year's time, Babylonians would load up the statue of Bel and throw it on a cart for a great parade through the city. And Isaiah mocks the so-called great gods of Babylon. Why would you want to follow a God that has to be put on a cart and carried around town? A God that you built with your own hands. You cut down a tree and you carved an idol. If you flip back to chapter 44, he uses this language. You take a log and you cut it in half. You, you carve an idol out of one end of it and you put the other end on the fire and you roast your, your supper over that fire. How does this make sense to you? Is this not strange at all that over one half you're roasting your meal and the other half you're bowing down to worship? Think this through, my people. Would you rather form and build and prop up your God and then load it on a cart and carry it around? Or will you acknowledge the God who formed you, the God who carries you? And you see this very interesting contrast in this text. Think it through. Do you want a God who needs to be carried? Or do you want to be carried by the God who formed you? Verse 3 and 4, listen to me. You who have been born by me from before your birth and carried from the womb, even before you were born, I knew you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. And from the time of your birth, I have carried you. And, and then make no mistake, look at it. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. All the other gods are not gods at all. There is only one who carries us. This is indeed a divisive claim. Implication number three, it's a guaranteed claim. Now, you might argue with me and wonder, well, how can you say that so conclusively? We, we've not seen the end of all days yet, so how do you know that this will indeed come to pass? How do you know that this guarantee will be fulfilled and God answers it here in the text by saying, well, there's been many times before. I have proven myself in the past, and I will prove myself in the future. I proved myself in the past when I told you in advance what was going to happen. Verse 8 and 10, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. I'm God, there's no other. I'm God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet Done. I've done it before. I've prophesied the future and it has come to pass. And now I'm telling you once again that my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purposes. I've spoken and I will bring it to pass. What's the guaranteed claim? Well, the guaranteed claim is the end of chapter 45. We've looked at it already twice. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And as you look at that context, it, it makes it very clear that while every knee will bow, some will do it in disgrace, 
in shame, having been confounded, and others will do so in worship, having been justified and glorified by the Lord himself. But make no mistake, at the end of history, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You can take that promise to the bank, the Lord says. My counsel shall stand. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. So in a nutshell, that's what this text tells us. It is an exclusive claim. There's only one God. It is a divisive claim. All other gods are not gods at all. And it is a guaranteed claim that one day every knee will bow before the one true God. Now, in our cultural moment, you already know this, that talk like this is not too popular. I would also say that talk like this has never been popular from the ancient of days, right in the scriptures, right up till the present day. Alistair Begg is one of my favorite preachers to listen to, I think partly because of his Scottish accent. He's a Scotsman who immigrated to the U.S., and for the last 38 years, he has been the preaching pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. And he says, what if you ask the man on the street uh, what he had to say about these things that we've been talking about, that there's an exclusive claim to religion? You would probably hear something like this. Well, number one, there is no unique revelation in history. This is the word on the street, that there is no one grand meta narrative that we can all agree upon. And it is silly to think that there is. And it's arrogant for anyone to claim that they have a corner on the truth market. There's no one grand story. Secondly, there are many different ways to reach God. Don't you understand that? The wheel, the mountain, the elephant. There's many, many different ways to get to God. Uh, number three, all of those views have problems in them and challenges in them. And so no one of those views alone can fully satisfy us. So number four, we should do our very best to harmonize those views, to create some great spiritual stew that we can take out a ladle or a buffet table where we can pick a little bit of each and fill our spiritual plate, that we can syncretize them, harmonize them. And number five, they all agree on the big stuff. So get over the little stuff. It's just a few details, just a few minor points that set them apart. And Begg calls this popular pluralism. I'm sure that you have likely bumped into these kind of thoughts. But the question we must ask ourselves and our friends is simply this, well, are those statements true? You see, it's all well and good to deflect any real contemplation about the claims of Christ by saying, oh, well, he's just one of many spiritual teachers out there. And they basically all say the same thing anyway. So you pick your God and I'll pick mine. Uh, it's all true. But is that true? Do all religions teach and believe the same thing? Because frankly, nothing could be further from the truth. And anyone who says so reveals not only an ignorance of the basic beliefs of any of the major world religions, but an overly simplistic view of even the most well-known religions. You see, we need to point out the differing claims that cannot all be true at the same time. You see, the Buddhist says that there is no eternal soul. The Hindu says there is. They can't both be right, can they? Islam says that Jesus Christ was not crucified. Christianity says he was. 
They can't both be right. Judaism says that Jesus was not the Messiah. We say he was. We can't both be right. If we go back to Prothero's book, now remind yourself, he's not a Christian, and yet he teaches religion. And he says to claim that all religions are the same, Therefore, is not to deny the differences among a Buddhist who believes in no God, a Jew who believes in one God, and a Hindu who believes in many gods. It is simply to claim that the mathematics of divinity is a matter of the foothills. So here he grabs that metaphor that we're all climbing up the same mountain and these differences are just the foothills. If we were to go out here in Abbotsford and climb to Mount Baker, we would realize there's many foothills and we get lost in the valleys in between. There's lots of differences, but the destination to the top of Mount Baker is still the same. And so debates over whether God has a body, yes, say the Mormons and no, say the Muslims, or whether human beings have souls, yes, say the Hindus, no, say the Buddhists, do not matter because, as the Hindu teacher Swami Sivananda writes, the fundamentals or essentials of all religions are the same. There is difference only in the non-essentials. Now listen to what Prothero says to that. He says, this is a lovely sentiment but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. It's untrue to make such a claim. So let's just accept for a moment that the exclusive claims of the Bible are indeed true. Then how should we apply them? And I want to give you three quick applications. The first is this, my friends, we must avoid the trap of arrogance. Because in an age that says that there is no one single solitary truth, only multiple truths, we must prepare ourselves for the inevitable claim that we are arrogant. For us to simply quote Jesus, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father through me, or to quote Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To just quote those two verses is to invite probably ridicule for being so narrow-minded. And secondly, the charge of being arrogant. Who are you to say that you have a corner on the market of truth? But remind yourself what the Bible says, that the person without the Spirit of God doesn't discern spiritual things. 2 Corinthians 2, the natural person cannot understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. And remind yourself that these critics of Christianity, these skeptics of Christianity, are our not-too-distant cousins. That all of us in the not-too-distant past were trapped in the darkness of human speculation until the Spirit of God moved on these cold heart, awakened us to the depth of His love and the depth of our rebellion. That we too were wandering in spiritual curiosity but ignorance. That left to ourselves, we are Romans 1 people. What does Romans 1 say? Well, it says, although they knew of God through the revelation of creation and through nature, that instead of worshiping the creator, we turned away and worshiped 
the created things, the creatures and the created, the sun and the moon, the images of stars and animals, of idols of our own making, sex and money and power, and that we refuse authority, we are selfish in all our ways, and we are uncaring in all our expressions, that by nature that's who we are, but that by God's grace, and by God's grace alone, he shone a light into our cold, dark hearts. C.S. Lewis, a great philosopher and theologian from 80 years ago, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, says that until we reckon with the great story of the universe, that there is indeed a great story in the universe, the God of the universe will remain a stranger to us. He will be an impossible concept to embrace. But he goes on to say this. Lewis was a skeptic who investigated Christianity and eventually embraced the Christian faith. It is after you have realized there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you've realized that our position is nearly desperate, you begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. In other words, all conversation up till that point in time in a person's life is simply wah, wah, wah. That's all they hear. And so our approach must be winsome and gracious and prayerful and humble. I once was blind, but now I see. Second implication, or application rather, is this. We must learn the art and science of tolerance. Oh, Christian friends, we must learn this. You see, the people we love and are trying to share the gospel with are not our enemies. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, the Apostle Paul tells us. It's not people that we are ultimately fighting against. It's an enemy that has them bound. And so we mount our assault on his strongholds first by prayer and then secondly with truth. And we cry out, oh God, have mercy on my friend, just like you had mercy on me. And we stop expecting non-believing people to live like a believing person. We're not shocked when non-believers do non-believing things, and we tolerate them, even if they don't want to tolerate us. And one of the reasons that Christians have been hated in recent years is because we've been so intolerant. And we need to repent. We need to say, oh God, forgive us. These people are not our enemies. And friends, I think we need to fight for the meaning of that word, tolerance, because it is being lost. Uh, the word tolerance literally is an engineering term. That's the root where it comes from. That there is an acceptable amount of tension or stress or variation that a structure can endure and still remain structurally sound, can still stand against the winds of time. And so we acknowledge each other's view. And our relationships can endure tension and stress and still stand. I can say to my friend, I don't agree with you, but I affirm that you have every right to hold your opinion. I respect your right because I am exercising the exact same freedom in holding my opinion. 
And I look forward to having a respectable conversation as we compare our convictions. Neither of us are afraid of the truth. But you see, tolerance is going the way of the rotary dialed phone or the mullet or the Canucks for that matter. It's a nice piece of nostalgia, but hopelessly out of date. If you don't affirm my views as being equally valid and true as yours, then you must hate me. And we have to respond and say, oh, no, 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 not at all. I do not hate you. I just happen to hold an opposing view, and we can be friends and disagree on many things. So we must learn the winsome art and science of the tolerant debate. And finally, point three is this, and most importantly, let's point out what the religious, what all the religions rather, get right. That we can acknowledge that while all the world religions are not the same, they do agree on one fundamental truth, that the world is broken. And again, to quote from Prothero, he says this, what the world's religions share is not so much a finish line as a starting point. And where they begin is with this simple observation that something is wrong with the world. Religious folk worldwide agree that something has gone awry. You see, what all the religions and philosophies of the world hold in common is simply this, that there's a problem. And they're looking for a solution and they use that problem as a starting point for their conversation. And so I've suggested this to you before. Ask people you know the simple question, what's wrong with the world? And you will get an answer. What's wrong with my life and how can I fix it? And every world religion will answer that question with the very same answer. They will give you the list. Here's your list. Do these things. Take these steps. Pursue these ends. Every religion will tell you, do this, except one. There is one that says something different. Christianity answers that question with a very stark answer. How can I fix this mess that I am in? How can I fix the problems of the world? Christianity's answer is this. You can't. It's impossible. It cannot be humanly accomplished. Because for it to be accomplished by a human, it would require a person who had lived above the brokenness and the pain and the sin and the hurt of this world in order to provide a solution. But unfortunately, there has never been such a person until until the one, until God took it upon himself to take on human flesh, to live the perfect life that we could not live, and to offer that life in payment for the debt that we had incurred. You see, the broken world echoes back in the chambers of our heart to a better world, and the path back is the finished work of Jesus Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his ascension to glory and to power. 
And what God is reminding his people of here in Isaiah to these exiles who were not feeling at home in the land and in the culture they were part of sounds like us in the mess of their own making was simply this. Don't look to the idols of the world around you. Bell and Nebo to the gods that these people worship. I, I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. All of these so-called gods are not gods at all. Do you want a God that you have to carry or a God who will carry you? And what Jehovah God revealed to these exiles is that there is no other God that will satisfy. It is identical to what Jesus revealed in the New Testament. There, there is no other path to life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. God called these exiles and the nations around them, come and be saved. And Jesus calls to all of us, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. So how about you? Can you hear his call? What will be your answer? If you're thirsty, come and drink. Because there's only one stream that will satisfy. Let me pray for you. Father, you know the men and women, the boys and girls who are listening to this message. You also know the exclusive claims that you have made since the beginning of time. That there is indeed only one true God. That there is indeed only one path to find our way back to you. And in our brokenness and in our pain, we try so many other things to fix the mess that we find ourselves in. But, oh God, we are so thankful for the solution that you gave. That the solution was not do more, pray more, give more, serve more, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the solution was the finished work of Jesus Christ. The perfect life of Jesus laid down in sacrifice for our sin to pay the debt that we could not pay for ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women who are listening to this, that it would be a reminder again for those who have drunk from this well to keep drinking this refreshing water. And for those who maybe have never understood this message before, that for the very first time they would come to the water, they would take a sip of this refreshing stream, and that they would find life in the only place it can be found, in the finished work of Jesus, our Savior for our great joy, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.